and they don't even have roofs over their heads, some of them. Like, you know, they live in huts, and it was... And then the one thing that they had was a Western Union. It was a mud hut in every village that you go to, and they always had a Western Union. And that was actually my first kind of call it the the first eureka moment when we looked at like what bitcoin could do if you could allow wide-scale distribution to occur welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency now it's time to get a bit cryptic Howdy, Cryptonauts. This is Jeff Peterson. Uh, you guys know my voice. Don't see my face a lot because I hide behind podcasts. So uh, today we have the very intelligent, um, very awesome Joseph Weinberg. He is co-founder of Shift Network, which aims to shake up the world of identity verification and data sharing using blockchain and zero-knowledge proofs. Joe has also been advising on policy and regulatory environments for the crypto space for governments. So. If you've ever heard of G20 or G7, that's who he works with. And if you don't know who G20 and G7 are, um, they're kind of a big deal and you need to like start Googling things. So um, <laughs> Joe, I, I found it interesting. Before the interview, I was looking you up and you actually know a good friend of mine, Marshall Swat. Yes. From Coinsetter. I do. He's a homie, so uh, you're already a homie. <laughs> I mean, we got connected through another friend of mine, too. So now I'm, like, connecting in multiple ways. Of so. course. The space is small, but ever-growing. Yeah, yeah, it's ever-growing, but it's also, like, ever-shrinking, too, the more yeah. people you meet. You know, it's like this... Absolutely. I'd love to see, like, a mathematical analysis yeah. of those curves. Of how that all interacts. I'm sure you could figure it out. Um, <laughs> so I just kind of want to start off the bat. Before we get into, like, your background and everything, I just want to know, like, what's something that has been very surprising for you after getting into the space that maybe you didn't realize or didn't know before that you think maybe would kind of surprise people after after getting into doing what you're doing? Yeah, um, I've been in the space since 2010, uh, and so I've seen all ups, downs, sides to sides. I mean, between 2010 and 2014, like the space was not cool, you know? And I think that there's this big transition into, and I think that the speed at which I would say between 2015 till now, the speed of you know of of interest in the space was so profound that most people don't realize it. You know, it's now it's the coolest place to be, and it's you know it's the hippest, sexiest thing. But but you know when we were building early on, like we were getting thrown into VCs, like no one wanted to talk to us. And so I would say probably the most surprising thing is to watch in how a year to a year and a half the entire narrative changed, mm-hmm. um, and 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 with it you know development, the amount of different you know things happening, the innovations that are occurring in every part of the world is also what's so fascinating like it's not subject to north america or asia it is truly everywhere so so it's kind of going through a moore's law style growth or even more absolutely and it's the speed of it is like not only fascinating it's you know it's mind-boggling i think to any industry i think that we've seen in in history probably yeah it's cool yeah it's it's funny you know you mentioned getting kicked out of uh, of boardrooms by vcs and stuff (laughs) and then come uh what was it two years ago or last year um what was that that company that changed their name? It was like an iced tea company that added blockchain to their name. Oh yeah, and their uh, stock jumps, and then and now I guess they're getting sued for it. But. <laughs> but I mean, that's like a perfect example. It was perfect, like how it just became cool just to throw blockchain on anything. And there you go, and your stock explodes. Yeah, of, yeah. It's it's a really good you know testament I think to the whole thing. So yeah, and that's the most fascinating thing for me, hundred um, percent. So you're a really fascinating guy. Speaking of fascinating. Um, 
you spent time in the Peruvian Amazon. Yes. Which, I mean, it's pers- like, I think it's also interesting our guest, but I'm also personally interested in that topic because I used to work a little bit in the Brazilian Amazon as well as in um, Peru and like in the Sacred Valley area for a little while. Um, tell us about that. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was exploring, you know, it was, uh, midway through my third year of, uh, of university and I went on a, you know, backpacking trip Yeah. and what went from a two month vacation turned into about a, an eight month. And I lived with a tribe of natives in the heart of the Peruvian Amazon in the northeasternmost part, um, outside of a city named Pucallpa. Um, and it was one of the most interesting places I've ever been to. They didn't have, you know, they have dirt roads. A lot of people didn't wear clothes. There were not even electricity, but everyone had kind of two things. They had a satellite dish and they had a cell phone. Mm. And it was like the most interesting place you could ever think to be. So here's this naked person, like, (laughs) you know... All, everything, all, all of God's creation for the, the Lord to see, you know, and Absolutely. he's, like, just typing away, like, <laughs> like his, his yeah. dad on his cell phone and, like, watching, like, the latest flicks from the satellite, like. Absolutely, like, it's in, <laughs> like, and they don't even have roofs over their heads, some of them. Like, you know, they live in huts, and it was, and then the one thing that they had was a Western Union. It was a mud hut in every village that you go to, and they always had a Western Union. And that was actually my first kind of call it the the first Eureka moment when we looked mm. at like what Bitcoin could do if you could allow wide scale distribution to occur. Because, you know, you have a cell phone, you have the ability for internet or at least satellite based network mm-hmm. connectivity, and you have this uh, concept of global money transmission. So it was kind of the first, you know, you know, early realization that, you know, if we could make Bitcoin global, what would that mean for places and populations like that? So, so um, and next to the mud hut is a Bitcoin ATM. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the idea. Yeah, one day, hopefully. That's the idea. So, yeah. yeah. That would be interesting. Uh, it'll come. It will be there one day. So um, let's maybe talk more about, like, I guess what our audience is interested in, uh, which mm-hmm. is your your crypto background, your or maybe just your background in general. Mm-hmm. Um could you, could you tell us a little bit about where you came from? Yeah, so born in Canada on the West Coast in Vancouver. Um, I was doing third-year computer science uh, in late 2010. Um, and that was actually my first time finding Bitcoin. So we were uh, mining in my computer science class, me and two buddies. And the first thing they, they came and said to me was in December, actually. They're like, like, what are you guys doing? Like, go for, you know, like Hanukkah or Christmas. Like, get out of here. Go to Whistler, snowboard. Like, you know, just, you know, get out of school. And they're like, oh, no, we're mining the Bitcoins. <laughs> what is the Bitcoins? Yeah, what is that? What is like, this coin of Yes. Yeah. And then so, you know. this chain of blocks. <laughs> basically, yeah. It was like this, you know. And at that time, too, it was, like, very much a cool science project for the Internet. Like, it was, yeah. you know, it was so small. It was, you know, it was pre-infancy. Um, and so, you know, one thing led to another and we were mining for about six to eight months on our laptops, you know, spun up a few more laptops. And so how, how did you find it? How did you get the idea that you wanted to mine it? So we were working on a, in a computer networking class, like a distributed systems kind of project. Um, okay. And so we were trying to figure out what the right P2P network could be for a certain use case that we were trying to build. And they stumbled upon, you know, the libraries uh, that were running Bitcoin very early days. I think um, you're the first person I've talked to who... <laughs> 
whose introduction wasn't Silk Road. Yeah. No, <laughs> To be definitely. honest, like, 90% of people are like, you know, I heard about it through Silk Road, yep. and my friends are buying fake IDs. And then I got into it, like, I shit you not, it's like 90% of the people I interview. <laughs> that, and that's, like, the way that most of them, like, honestly, it's like, there's only two real paths, you know? And it was that one. Well, or, then, at least. Now there's obviously others, but, like, absolutely. back then, yeah. Back then, it was IRC channels, and it was, you know, very rudimentary, you know, exploration. And but so, you actually wanted to use it for something, so We I, tried to. Yeah. It didn't work so well, but then we found it and we were like, this is kind of cool, you know, and, and started really understanding concepts. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a few months, moved to the Amazon, kind of stopped. Uh, I was there for about six months, then I came back. Uh, and I kind of just walked away and, you know, I went and got a real job and moved to Toronto. Um, and then one of the first exchanges in the country had actually been hacked. This was like early, late 2013. Which one was that? It was called CA Vertex. Okay. Um, and so uh, the guys were working on Coinsetter uh, in New York uh, and Jaren, the CEO, was a very good friend of mine. And so I kind of brought, came on to help them build it and we acquired CA Vertex try to clean up kind of the mess. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we were probably the largest exchange in North America. Um, there wasn't too many. Uh, and this was kind of, you know, just around Gox era as well. So, you know, you're watching these highs in 2013 and everyone's, you know, running into the space kind of in that time. And then the big lows started, started to occur and, and we kept on building. Um, and then I've been working on things ever since. So, um, yeah, so we got acquired by Kraken in 2016 from Quinsetter. Um, from uh, which was an interesting experience. And at the time, there was so little understanding on how you build businesses in this space that you were literally making it up as you go. Um, and so, you know, you had regulators who had no idea what was going on. You're getting calls yeah. from the FBI and suspicious transactions. And, you know, you're young guys trying to build a startup. It's kind of the opposite things you would, you know, normally think you'd have to jump yeah. through. And you could get banking. Building a normal a financial business right now, it's like, here are the things you do. Yeah. It's like the here basic things yeah. weren't there, like at all, you know? And so we had to do a lot of the legwork teaching regulators, you know, making the most simple things that normal businesses had, we never had. Right. And so it was very much these early guys in the space were just trying to, you know, learn together, work together in all these different countries. And it was probably the most interesting thing, too, because you had all these friends in different places that were just battling, like, giants. You're battling institutions. You're yeah. battling, you know, regulatory environments. It was a very different and kind of awkward thing to do as a startup founder. Um, but, yeah, and so that's would kind you, of the early days. Do you days. prefer those early days, just, or do you prefer how it is now? I, you know, then I always had to say it was all fun and games because it really kind of was. Um, Toronto is also really particularly interesting for the crypto space. Uh, we were, you know, some of the earliest, I would say, communities in the entire ecosystem uh, based in Canada specifically. So we, you know, the co-founders of Ethereum were all based in Toronto. Um, and kind of this really interesting early view of what blockchain and ecosystems in this space would start to look like really derived out of the early beginnings of Ethereum and kind of that whole movement in Toronto. So a lot of the innovation distribution that's happened has actually been a lot of these early guys in Toronto that really pushed the narrative around the world. Um, and so it was a cool, amazing time, but it was a lot more fun. You know, it was playful. It wasn't, you know, now we're very much institutionalizing and it comes with a lot of different requirements. And, and you know, a lot of the early guys in the space are kind of having to figure out how to adapt to that um, for better and for worse. So. so you guys are, so it's basically Canada's fault. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, in a good way, but yes, <laughs> we've done a lot of the, yeah, we've laid a lot of the groundwork say, to make an interesting ride. As, as a, <laughs> not as a bad thing, you know? Of course. No, yeah, it's, uh, we, we were, I hope to say helpful in a lot of where the ecosystem is today and where it's going, so. Um, speaking of where it's going, uh, 
there's been some interesting developments like in um in some of the stuff you've been doing with with regulatory advising things like that mm-hmm. uh the um was it fa fatf yep um so that stand for again it's the uh, financial action task force financial action, ta- action task force which i learned about just before this interview i'm surprised it didn't know it exists but um i guess that's why we can talk about it during this interview so we can yes. educate everyone including myself mm-hmm. uh what's going on and what's happening in terms of these regulations so yeah tell us a little bit about about that about the effects on the crypto industry mm-hmm. just kind of break it down for us like we're like we're five because mm-hmm. i know i definitely am of course yeah um and this is the side is it mo- this is the again on the institutional side this is the part that the ecosystem largely isn't too involved with and aware of and i think and that's like the big thing is about it's about really now understanding what's happening in a global perspective so i spent the last two years advising the oecd which is basically the research division of the g7 and g20 uh, and it was formulated after world war ii to help write policy requirements for the global economy Um, and a part or a subdivision of that is the financial action task force the FATF was created by the G7 uh, late late 1990s early 2000s as a way to combat and to build global standard or regulatory requirements in every jurisdiction as it pertains to know your customer and any money laundering requirements for you know to uh, maintain equal balance in, in the financial system and to reduce the potential risks and threats of, you know, terrorist actions and other, you know, money laundering requirements um, or potentials. And so the FATF is one of the most unknown bodies to the majority of the world, and they're one of the most impactful at the same time because they're the one of the only intergovernmental organizations that when they make rules, they help enforce sanctions, for example. They help ensure that blacklists and countries are, are either maintaining the proper financial requirements as a, an economy or not. And so they are a recommendation-based system that works on behalf of almost all countries in the world to ensure a certain level of, sustain, of suitability. Um, most people don't know this. So they're kind of almost regulating the world economy to extent yeah they help inform how regulation becomes localized so fincent's recent um uh kind of guidance on uh, what we look at finance as money transmission in the cryptocurrency space is actually derived from the guidance that comes out of the financial action task force and every other country will adopt those same requirements based on fatf guidance i see okay yeah so guideline makers Yes. So, so tell Important us about this policy that's that's come out recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably one of the most concerning, I would say, that we have to date. And I think that it's reminiscent of a few different really important things that our ecosystem will begin to face over the next, you know, two to five years, which is this big battle that we have in terms of how regulations are understood, defined, written, and then more importantly, how our ecosystem properly educates and informs standards and policy to help lawmakers make the right decisions. And so there's a few different really important things here, but effectively, I think the biggest battle that our ecosystem will face in the next kind of few years is how we better communicate and interact with global regulators, policymakers, and effectively people that inform the global economy. Uh, and so that's like a number one important thing. Uh, the FATF and these, these types of um, kind of examples are the best. The problem that I think that we have today, and most people don't know this, is guidance at the level that the FATF has put out effectively makes it so that every single, call it business in the space, anywhere in the world, 
is likely to have to now attach sender and receiver data to almost all cryptocurrency transactions in the world. What does that mean? Any no ex- more anonymity. Exactly. And it also means that they're basically taking the way that the SWIFT network works for banking and correspondent banking and trying to ask us as an ecosystem to embed all of our transmission data, identity information, into the transactions that occur across any jurisdiction. Um, that's so, big. So will that make things like um, the, the anonymous coins illegal? It makes it impossible to comply. And this is mm-hmm. the problem. And it is not, and there's like two sides of this. One is that regulators are in a very hard position globally because they are dealing with such rapid innovation and change and so much open innovation that it's very hard to understand what's happening. By the time they've written legislation, things have already changed in our space. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, they're also dealing with this problem that the traditional world does not work the way that we do. And so you're having to figure out how you change the way that policy is written so that it's done proactively and so that it doesn't ruin innovation. And that's a very hard, you know, line to to work on. And yeah, I mean, I guess I could also probably understand some of the reasoning too of like, uh, apparently like a large amount of the criminal activity these days is um, they're using cryptocurrencies to like fund them essentially because it's easier to launder that compared to traditional money. Um, and so there's like pro- certain like security officials who are like probably pushing this kind of thing as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, I think the irony is that like the most used form of, you know, uh, or mechanism for money laundering is still cash, you know, because the beauty of bills is that they are very much decentralized and anonymous. You know, I can bring billions of dollars in cash and crates around the world and no one will ever know. Uh, I think the bigger problem that's happening is that they don't have a good enough grasp on how you look at use-based policy and instead they're just saying you know what this is very Across complex the board. we're gonna just make it easy you guys figure out how to approach it and yeah. now your industry has to act and i think that that the industry also is at a bit of fault here as well and i think that that's an important thing is that we've gone on this idea that decentralization is means that rules don't apply and by being distributed there's not one voice like we have not done i don't think a good enough job as businesses leaders and industry to come together and say we are going to help you as policy writers and and regulators to understand this is how we do things this is our standard procedures this is what bitcoin is this is what it isn't and if we do not you know walk across the aisle and properly show them how these things work and also say that we are as an industry aligned and unified in our positioning and our messaging they look at it and be like these guys are all over the place we're just going to regulate them out of existence and i think that that's what we're kind of battling with today yeah but it sounds like they don't necessarily want to regulate you out of existence it's just they they want to make there's a lot of red tape on their end and and if they do nothing they don't want to feel like they're responsible for like Maybe all these like secondary things that happen when there's no identity data attached to it, and they're like, "Well, identity is always, always better to identify people because yes. you know that just makes it easier to track if nefarious things are happening or whatever." Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, it's not like they're trying to ruin innovation; it's that they have a hard time keeping up with it. And so, if you do not give them the right information and help, then if you're not helping regulate yourself, then they will regulate you for you. And yeah. I think you need a balance. And then, so. so here we are where they're regulating us for you. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, what, so what are the consequences of this 
When was this passed, by the way? So the FATF's formal guidance goes out in the end of June, but this is pre- this is preliminary guidance. Um, yeah. This happened over the last kind of few months. It's been in the works for about a year. Um, okay. It's largely led by the United States today, um, and there's other geopolitical reasons as to why, <laughs> for better and for worse. Um, but it's more about how fast uh, local regulatory bodies like FinCEN um, choose to actually enforce. Okay. So what you saw this last you know, few weeks is that FinCEN made formal guidance that effectively requires all exchanges in the United States today to actually enforce this in a relatively quick time frame. And what that is, is the first instance of guidance being acted upon from the FATF to local jurisdictions. And the impact of that on the, on the ecosystem right now is immense. This basically means that U.S. exchanges are inherently less competitive than global. It means that they will always be out of compliance because they will never be able to properly take receiver data from global exchanges because they do not have to enforce it at a global level yet. So you have this fracturing of how the ecosystem inherently functions and how networks and therefore liquidity moves which starts to create a lot of very, very complex problems. Right. So you guys, conveniently enough, a solution for this, right? Or at least a, maybe not a solution, but a, but a band-aid. It's a um, tranquilizer, as yeah. we put it. Yeah, we do. Um, so, so tell us about that. It's, it's Shift Network, right? Yeah. And you guys are working on identity and providing data in a, in a way that basically can provide that information without de-anonymizing people yes using zero knowledge proofs and things like that so tell us give us the spiel <laughs> yeah so we uh, we were working with a company called Blockstream about three and a half four years ago on something called the Liquid Network and we were looking at private at new techniques around what we call federated system design and how you would effectively look at scalability on the Bitcoin network and a lot of the the core ideas of shift came out of the question of how do I allow participants that also have a requirement to compete and collaborate at the same time in a permissioning environment, how do you give them the right type of infrastructure that allows them to pass, let's say, value faster, or to change the way that Bitcoin transactions take, or that allow you to send uh, regulated data in privacy-enhancing ways, but making it so that open networks can validate the data but not actually disclose the data. Hmm. How do you effectively allow transmission of things to occur like identity information without actually having the whole world understand who it is, but only right. the counterparties? So that's where it started. Basically, I have, I have your name in a box. How do I prove that I have your name and that your name matches what it should be without actually revealing what your name is? Correct. And how do you or allow- Or whatever other data. Yeah, and how do you allow a public network to validate it yeah. without them knowing the information itself, right? right, And this is, comes down to the core question. Um, and so we spent the last two years building Shift. Um, we brought um, a lot of architects from Blockstream. Uh, we brought a lot of Ethereum core developers and kind of people across many different protocols all together and said, if we had to build a system, a system that would work as a public permissionless POW that could also allow the binding of institutions or institutional requirements in a, call it a federated or permissioned kind of environment, how would you build a public system that would close itself off and allow it to work across any other network protocol for the purposes of identity information or data aggregation broadly? And it's a very big concept, it's not small, but effectively what it is, it's a cross-protocol network infrastructure that allows us to 
pull identity information from senders, receivers, exchanges, financial institutions, governments, other public networks, permission networks, banks, you name it, and allow them all to conform to a protocol standard that allows them to share the proofs of data or information to be valid. So basically, to break that down, mm -hmm. you said a lot. Of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have say Binance or BitTrick, some, some exchange, they're yeah. exchanging, people are buying, people are buying Bitcoin for US dollars or they're buying Ethereum with Zcash, whatever. They're doing these transactions. You guys are able to link up with them. Uh, you're able to provide like a, like a know your customer type of data, like um, to prove that a particular person, we, you, we won't say who um, because our, our data, you know, we've, we've built it in a way such that it doesn't reveal it. Um, we know that this person did this, and it's like validated, mm -hmm. both actually revealing it, and, and through that validation, we can comply with regulation. Correct. And then make this exchange now, which has been out of compliance thanks to this new FATF regulation, yep. can now be in compliance yes. without sacrificing the ideals of the crypto world, which is basically, you should be able to do what you want and not have to reveal every little piece of dirty laundry every time you fucking... <laughs> buy buy ice cream from your friend and you give him some Bitcoin, you know? Absolutely. So like the idea is that it acts as a side rail to any other network, allows you to validate that identity information or any receiver and sender data is actually verifiable, true, and active across those exchanges, let's say, but allows you to not have to embed that into Bitcoin transactions or any other network transactions. It's merely a side chain for all other networks. So that's cool. I mean, yeah. <laughs> having a side chain already for one network is hard enough, but you built a side chain for everyone. Yeah. We believe that. that <laughs> side chains for all. It's like Shift's <laughs> main chain is your side chain side chain. That's yeah. the way that we kind of think about yeah, it. Yeah, it's so. not confusing at all. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. And it'll become far more interesting and complex. But yeah. I mean, the end of the day goal was how do we solve fundamental problems in the blockchain ecosystem? that had perverse impacts and effects on the traditional world. That was kind of the way that we designed and developed over the last few years. Um, perverse impacts. I like yeah. that word. I feel, I'm not going to say what that, that phrase reminds me of. But <laughs> yeah, but it's, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's like a, it's a, an ecosystem, it's a, it's a blockchain ecosystem and environment that was not just built to, you know, scale everything and make the world more decentralized, but to solve critical function problems that we have today. So cool. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. So what's then what's next for you guys? You're, you're building this thing. Yeah. What's so on the table in front of you? Mainnet's launching in about four to five weeks. Um, we've been heavily focused on a kind of a few core verticals. Um, and so those will start to go live. We did a deal with the Bermudan government. So we're building the identity system for Bermuda. Um, so that'll go into phase one in the summer. Um, we're about to announce two much larger countries uh, over the next six to 12 months. Yes, that in that are first one's about 112 million people in population size to work on identity, uh, and then one's about uh, close to half a billion. So those are kind of in the works. Um, those will be announced soon. So it's pretty pretty big. Not too shabby. Um, we have projects that are, and then the other kind of two focuses are on enterprise um, kind of integrations, some of the largest payment uh, networks in the world. Um, which will be announced this year as well, and on the crypto space, really focusing with exchanges and, and other service providers in our space to make sure that they can continue to do things the way we do them, but allow them to help comply globally wherever they are and more interoperably. So, so basically, 
governments and exchanges. So your your next big yeah, and, and more so governments from the Just perspective half a billion people. I don't think that's that many. You know? Not too big. Not too, that's, that's <laughs> tiny. Yeah, it's yeah, a couple. You must but be I bored all day. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's about personal privacy and building systems that work and making sure that they can work to solve real problems. So yeah. Yeah. Well, if you can, I mean, if you can help people maintain their privacy while still getting what needs to be done, done in terms of identifying what you need to identify, then it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? Solve both people's needs. Yeah, that's kind of the, the need for privacy with the need for making sure the person is who they say they are, you know? Absolutely. Without them having to reveal all their information while doing it. Right. I would rather be able to prove that you are in, in fact credible, credible and trustworthy than having to say, I want to know all of your information just for the sake of knowing. Right. right. So that's kind of the idea. So Cool. Yeah. Uh, so I want to like go off on a tangent just because I ask every guest this. Um, mm-hmm. What is one of your favorite resources to learn about crypto? Because you obviously know a shit ton about this stuff. Yes. Um, I'm sorry for the kids I- that are listening. <laughs> Don't do what I do. Do as I say. Cussing is bad. There we go. <laughs> Even um, I say fuck like 20 times per episode. <laughs> there we go. Um, Can you fuck, fuck, fuck? Okay, anyway. Um, so <laughs> it just went up. <laughs> um, what's my main core channel? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of like crypto, like old guy channels, I would say. So a lot of the early guys in the space, we have a lot of kind of like just deep groups. Like actual old people or people who have been I mean, in the space for a while? Like, people who have been in the space for a while. And so, you know, we were pretty good at sharing information where we can. But, you know, I am a absolute like i just go after every single news source i link them into telegram like groups on my own and i will just feed constant news and i just try to absorb everywhere yeah for the most part i use it as kind of a data aggregation kind of layer so do you remember irc i do the good old remember that shit like when that was was awesome (laughs) it was great does anyone still use that is it still like Mm, core developers bitcoin core developers still have irc i could just imagine them like they like program using a black background and green text and like yeah. playing like program yeah. wearing like fucking headgear like <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that we all just resort back to IRC because it's yeah. now the, the hip thing to do I mean, like program with like an happens. arm like arm band like thing of a keyboard like this or a neural link from yeah. Elon Musk or something but um yeah I mean honestly Coindesk and, and the usuals is where I, I really find the most of it and just try to you know continue to you know keep my pulse in the space wherever I can. So cool. Yeah. So uh, we're getting close to uh, you know, like a couple minutes left, but we're getting pretty close to time here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is there anything you want to cover that we haven't really talked about yet that that you think the audience would be interested in hearing? Mm, I don't think too much else. I mean, I think that like the the main thing is that like the regulatory side as much as we all hate it in the space is really important and so I think that it's in our own best interest as the ecosystem to all you know take time to actually understand you know what these things are and how they affect us because uh, they do um, and yeah and start reading up on shift because we're doing some pretty cool stuff so that shift of the why by the way exactly we have to shift the way that the words work too Ooh. You didn't tell me you're such a punny guy. I know, I'm punny. That's the way, that's the way it works. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah, take a look at some of the stuff we're doing. We're doing a lot more stuff. and yeah. Cool. cool. Um, you mentioned before our, our podcast started that mm-hmm. um, another thing that had surprised you was how friendly governments were. Yes. And how it seems like, you know, they're, they're from the outside, look very antagonistic, mm-hmm. but in reality, they're just kind of 
doing with the best with what they have and, yeah. and this decision that they might make that seem bad to people might not be out of malice but just out of like lack of education about certain mm-hmm. topics yeah I can talk about that yeah I mean like I think that this is like the reality like we're all humans right and I think that we get you know shadowed in news and media and all this stuff but like at the end of the day everyone here is trying to learn I mean, there's not, just because you're a regulator or you're, you know, in government does not mean you're just, uh, you're less interested mm-hmm. than all of us. You know, this is all a learning experience. And I think that that's like the most important thing. Like we spend a lot of time, you know, advising and educating and trying to, you know, make sure that we have enough information and the right information to the people that ultimately make the decisions around the world today. Mm-hmm. And this isn't only us. This is co-founders of Rootstock. These are some of the earliest guys in the space, uh, Bitcoin core developers, you name it. And I think that the big big misconception is regulation is there to hurt us and hinder us and that these people don't really care. And I would say that that's completely untrue. And it's, it's more so that if we do not do our best to try to show them how things work in a new world, you're speaking two different languages. And if you right. don't start to translate properly you know, then you're going to be left with this improper translation. And, and, you know, these, like, whenever we're with, like, governments, like, that's the biggest thing is that they're all so, um, like, excited to learn and to teach and to try to explain anything that they can after you've taught it as well. But you need to be able to get into that into that area. It makes sense. So, yeah. I mean, especially, <laughs> I think everyone, uh, if they hadn't watched it directly, they've seen, like, references to it where they brought Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress and these Congress people were just asking those ridiculous questions that just told how little they understood how the internet works and that's that's the internet like and then cryptocurrency blockchain all that stuff is like just a level like of even more complexity to the point where people who are already literate in in technology have a hard time understanding it so like it's like yeah and I mean I think that's like also I I wonder why they're making you know decisions that may not be the best interest of the community. No, and it's hard, right? Yeah. And it's it's also that like we as a community have very mixed messaging. So it's hard to know who do you go to, what's right. You have a lot of protocols that argue different things and different philosophies yeah. and, and you know, so it's where do you go to find the right information that yeah, is there's, there's not a Mark Zuckerberg necessarily of crypto because there's so many it's decentralized. Exactly. And so it makes our jobs as decentralized companies and, and people all that much harder. And it means yeah. that we have so much more that we need to do to lead because the world is watching us and they're asking, What's up? And if we don't respond yeah. and tell them and we're say, doing our own disservice, right? So Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we're gonna close it out. So, awesome. if people are interested in finding more about you or about Shift, where can they find that info? On Telegram at uh, or at on Twitter at jo- at Joseph Weinberg. Um, Telegram W E I N right? Yes, Not it W-E-I-N-E. is. W E I N B E R G. Correct. At Joseph Weinberg. Yep. Twitter is for Shift uh, at Shift Network. Um, Telegram's the same thing. Um, at sh- and shift.network is our website and I'm all shift. over the web shift.network with a Y yeah, yeah okay. correct cool yeah. and we'll link that up in the show notes awesome uh, so big thanks to Joe for coming on the show thank Round you for having applause. me thank you for listening to a bit cryptic podcast a bit cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon Dang Du and myself Jeff Peterson Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice.
If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep it cryptic.